here today with Annie Ogden. Annie, thank you for coming into the podcast studio. Jake, thank you for having me. It's been a year since the last time I was on here, so I'm excited to be back. Awesome. What's uh, what's new? What's happening in your world this year? Well, I'm currently on break from uh, my third year teaching full-time at Greenwich Country Day School in Connecticut and had a great fall, great first semester, coached girls soccer for the first time, and I was never quite a player of girls soccer, so it was a lot of fun. It was a learning experience, and I coached with a best teacher friend of mine, so that was a highlight of the first semester, but pretty exhausting, so I'm excited to be on a break now. So when you're coaching soccer and you've never played the sport, what's that like? I've, I've always thought about what sport I would like to coach that I hadn't played, and I think water polo would be my answer mm. because I'm, I'm interested in that sport. Would but you get in the pool with the players? I, well, I like swimming. I would like an excuse to get in the pool, mm-hmm. but I feel like if I had played water polo, I would have enjoyed that sport. Yep. I think that one, I think soccer might be up there with the sport I would most like to coach that I hadn't played, and I just got asked to do it by our head of athletics because they already had Lily, my coworker, signed up to be the head coach, and she was a soccer star back in the day. So I like to say that I was the culture hire. I wasn't there to help the girls get better at soccer. I was just there to help them, you know, be a team and get fired up. But I actually learned a lot about the sport. Um, our team improved a ton over the season, and I learned so much. I feel like soccer is a sport that's just not that complicated. It's pure athleticism and and skill um so I thought it was really awesome to watch and it made me more interested in watching the sport as a whole so so would you like to coach again would you come back next year totally totally I'm committed to this team the hard thing about coaching JV though is I realized at the end of the season all the players that I absolutely loved and got to know well and wanted to coach again by definition if you're playing on a JV team your goal is to not be on the team again next year your goal is to make varsity next year. So coming to terms with the fact that our best players, of which there were many, are probably all going to try out for and probably make varsity next year, that broke my heart a little bit. But I think it's the circle of life. Mm-hmm. I have to take myself out of the equation and remember. That's kind of part of the fun, though, is you get a brand new squad every year and you have to you have a new set of challenges, new best players, yes. new strengths, new weaknesses. Yes. You've got to figure that out. And it's a lot of fun having a team with a lot of freshmen on it because some of them were new to the whole school, came to GCDS from another school. Some of them were just new to our high school, which is on a whole other campus. So being there to be their coach at the same time that they were navigating this new school was also really cool. So I liked working with younger students there. So you told me that this year you are in a leadership role at your school. And recently you've done um, kind of a workshop with just the girls talking about female, high school, right, high school issues that are happening. Yep. And I'd love to know what that was like, that experience, what that was like leading that, and also some of the, the issues that you talked about with the girls at your school. Mm-hmm. So um, our school is co-ed, and I am the academic head of the 10th grade, um, or academic coordinator. And there was one afternoon a couple weeks ago that every grade in the school was going to do something different. Um, So we would have a half day of classes and then the afternoon will be something totally different. And for the 10th grade, I worked with our dean of students who handles a lot of the student life stuff in the 10th grade. And we worked out this kind of wellness afternoon. uh, And the last part of the afternoon was, yep, splitting into two groups, um, students who identify as a boy, students who identify as a girl. I also learned 
that um, I tried to be as aware of this as possible in the beginning, but it proved to be a challenge anytime you are splitting students based upon gender, um, that it's really hard to just say in this day and age, you know, boys over here, girls over here. There's a lot more gender identities and there's a lot more decisions that come with that. So that was interesting in and of itself, but I felt very firmly as, as a woman myself that, um, having these conversations, particularly for our girls, I can't really speak on behalf of the boys, but male teachers expressed that it was really important to have those conversations too. But I thought it was really important that we set aside some time and have sort of um, like what what you could say, we didn't call it an affinity space, but I think that was like the purpose behind why we had it, being able to allow these students to have conversations um, with people of a shared identity who have shared, you know, struggles as teenage girls, but also just different experiences. So I deferred to two of my colleagues who have experience in leading these discussions and um, a couple other girl colleagues and myself were just sort of support in that. But the way that we decided to frame it was uh, just a lot of hypotheticals in our conversation. So it was about four of us faculty members and the 60, 50, 60 girls in the grade. And we led with topics like, you know, what do you do if – your friend is supposed to hang out with you, says they can't suddenly, and then you see on their private story, private stories are a big thing now I'm learning in social media, you see on their private story that they're hanging out with another cooler group, what do you do? And just kind of posing those questions to the students and having them talk it out. It was interesting because you could kind of see some of the girls have one answer and then their friends would be like, wait, really? Like that's what you would do in that situation? Like Someone was like, I think it's great if they make new friends. And, you know, their friend would look at them and be like, you think it's okay to make new friends? And So it was small groups that were discussing these questions. It was one big group. It was like we all sat in a circle, 55 girls and uh, four female teachers. Do you feel like the girls felt comfortable and open enough to share truthfully their thoughts on these topics? I was surprised that, yes, they definitely did. And almost every girl in the room participated at some point, girls from all different, you know, social groups, interests, um, from all around the school. So um, I was pretty proud of that. And we didn't, you know, solve any major issues, but I think just allowing space to have those conversations is really important um, because being a teenage girl in 2023 is not easy. So I was happy that we did that, even though it took a lot of work to kind of get it planned. So I'm sure you have some thoughts after organizing this whole session with the girls, but in 2023, 2024, issues that are facing girls that are challenging, because I do teach girls in my coordinate classes, you know, I only see them for 80 minutes for Mm -hmm. each class, but I do, I would like to be aware of maybe some of the social and personal issues that girls could be facing in this era. What are some of those issues that maybe came up in your discussions? So, you know, it's interesting because I think that uh, my school, and I'm assuming Bryn Mawr and Roland Park, the girls' schools that I know you teach at, uh, do a great job at at lifting our girl, our female students up and, you know, not making them feel like the smartest ones in the grade are always going to be the boys or the most athletic ones in the grade are always going to be the boys or those kind of uh, long-standing stereotypes, but I do wonder if that adds a whole new element of pressure. And from what I've seen, I think it does to at least our girl students. I can't speak on behalf of the boys, but you know, 
you should be one of the you're you're fully capable of being one of the smartest students in the school and one of the most athletic and then you know you also want to have this whole social element where you feel in control socially and you have good friends and your social media reinforces all of this i think it's just it's leading to this uh you know this perfectionism in so many different areas that i think it's really hard for girls to feel like they can keep up with all that and i see that even carrying into later in life expectations for women of, and maybe men too, but for women especially, like, you need to be able to have it all, right? Like, even in my 20s, I'm seeing a lot of my friends and myself struggle with, you know, you need to excel at your job, and you need to have fun on the weekends, and you need to, you know, even, like, I grew up with social media. There's still, like, social media of, like, what are you doing, you know, keeping up with your college friends and having them all see wherever you're living, how much fun you're having, blah, blah, blah. So... I, I definitely think that those, like, that compounding of expectations on girls today, maybe it's always been there, but I think it's especially there today because it might be a unintended effect of a lot of, like, feminist women's movement efforts to tell girls, you know, you can do this, you can do that. And so then girls are looking around saying, okay, well, I have to do all this. So a lot of these issues are stemming from social media, you think. Here's another question is if we know – that certain things are damaging for our mental health or just or just bad in general. Like, why don't girls just, why aren't some of the younger generations of girls saying, look at all these mental health issues with teenage girls. Why don't we just get off social media and live our lives like they did before all of this started? I think that's a really hard question to answer because one thing that I think is a common misconception is that young people don't realize how toxic social media can be, I have seen from talking with students, they fully realize that. They know that social media can be really toxic and they can look at a photo of someone who seems like they're living a great life and say, this is just a highlight reel. I know this isn't their whole life, but something about it still makes you want to strive to have that. And at my school at GCDS, we recently this year implemented a phone policy where students drop their phones off with their advisor at 8.15 in the morning and they don't get it back until 3 o'clock. So even in a free period, even in between classes, even during lunchtime, not allowed to have their phones on them at all. And that's certainly been an adjustment in the school. And even though kids don't, not all kids like that rule, if you ask them, like, do you think that this is productive or do you understand why we're doing it, they almost all say yes. I wish we did that at Gilman. I wish we dropped our phones off at the beginning of the day and then got them back later. The really hard thing is it's – it just proves how addicting it is too because students can tell you, I know that it's in my best interest for the school to have my phone throughout the day or for me to not have it on me, but I want it, you know? It's interesting because every time I've just brought this issue up with colleagues here at Gilman, like what if we put our phones away at the beginning of the day and got them later? It's always just like that That will never happen because parents need to reach their child during the day. And for the most part, when you see kids texting during class or whatever in the hallways at assembly, it's to their parents. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to pick you up at 3 instead of 3.30 today, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. But I'm surprised that your school was able to get around that whole uh, conversation about the parents. It's a daily struggle for sure. Um, Every single day I have some issue that goes on with the phone. And it's almost always, you know, I have eight advisees. I have a clear bin where all their phones go in my classroom. And, you know, 
10 times a day I find myself looking at it and being like, is that eight phones? And then you're like, okay, well, nope, that's seven phones. And, you know, there's one black GCDS phone case missing. Which advisee is that? And they came in late and I need to track them down. And I was teaching when they tried to drop their phone off. Or maybe that's just the lie they told me. You know, it's it's definitely not easy. And I think as private schools, we really are like the if we want to talk about it like a business, the customer is ultimately the parents. So if the parents didn't buy into this policy, it's very hard for the school to say, you know, we're taking your kid's phone and if you don't like it, tough luck. Uh, So it definitely requires getting parents on board with it. And some kids will say, you know, my parent hates this phone rule. My parent thinks that you shouldn't have control over my phone. But for the most part, there's a lot of buy-in. And if kids need to reach their parent, they can – email them, they can go to our front desk and call them, or if I have an advisee come in during lunch saying, can I text my mom really quickly, of course my answer is going to be yes. But even I'll see they're texting their mom and then suddenly they're, you know, Snapchatting. And it's like they can't help themselves. You ever have them. cases with the, the burner phones or the old phones where students bring in and drop it in the bin, but they have their real phone on them? Not really. Kids always threaten to do that, but like in my opinion – it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of effort. Like, I'd be sort of embarrassed if I was going to that much trouble just to keep my phone on me. But certainly, like, I've seen our head of school or head of the upper school walk down the hallway and say to a kid, you know, I can see the outline of your phone through the pocket of your khakis, like, detention. Really? Yeah. So it's been a big adjustment this year. We have a new dress code, too, that is uh, a little bit closer to a uniform, but not quite. And... That's certainly been a challenge, and students, when, when we have that meeting with all the girls in the grade, stuff that immediately comes up is dress code and phones and how it makes them unhappy, but ultimately, you know, I think if you get to an honest conversation with students, a lot of times they'll say, like, I understand why this is the case. I understand why we have this dress code. I understand why we have this phone policy, but, you know, I want my phone on me, but I need to talk to my mom sometimes, but I feel more comfortable in school when I'm wearing sweatpants. You know, it's it's always a battle. So let's talk about uh, college admissions and pressures about college right. at uh, your school in Greenwich, Connecticut, what you're seeing there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I like, but I can see how it is maybe, I don't know if it's toxic or not. It's just the way it is, but I've got the Gilman 2024 Instagram page where all, everyone's getting into college now yep. and there's some good schools popping up and people are excited for everyone. A student um, at, at my school showed me that page too that, that GCDS has. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's funny because when I think about that, um, I think about, I, I even like looking at it. I mean, it's like another reason why social media can be beneficial. Like Kids that I taught two years ago when they were 10th graders and now they're seniors who were just awesome students. It's really cool to see, you know, so-and-so is going to this school, so-and-so is going to that school. Oh, great. I can reach out to them and say congratulations. But, I mean, I even remember I applied to college ED. I did not get in. And I got deferred. And I thought that was like a rejection sentence at that point. And I remember right after I got it, I didn't get in right before winter break. And when we came back from winter break, the – kids in my grade who had gotten into college were wearing sweatshirts of the college they got into. And that's a source of pride for them. It was great. But maybe this is just my problem, but I can remember, you know, a girl who was in my physics class walking in one day with a Colgate sweatshirt because she had just gotten in their ED. And I didn't even want to go to Colgate. But I will never forget that moment of just being like, ugh, 
why can't that be me right now? Just like so excited wearing my college sweatshirt, you know, feeling like I have that big weight off my shoulders. And the fact that I've never forgotten that moment, maybe that just speaks to how anxious I was and stressed as a high school senior. But I'm sure there are kids that are looking at that Instagram right now over holiday break, refreshing and refreshing after they didn't get in somewhere and just feeling so bummed. But it's it's part of what you sign up for at a prep school because that's really, at the end of the day, what it is about. You're preparing for college, and this yeah. is a big – this is a big time. This is a big moment for our students who are getting into schools. So, you know, there's obviously going to be stress and pressure and that sort of thing. It's interesting to think about whether all of this anxiety surrounding college is getting worse or getting uh, more intense than it was when I was going to college. Yeah. You know, or it's just always been like this. Yeah, um, I think that's interesting too. And the high school I teach at, so Greenwich Country Day was a preschool through ninth grade school for a very long time. They had the like extra ninth grade and then kids would go on. They could either leave after eighth grade, stay for ninth grade, and then be a new sophomore at another high school. But a few years ago, they actually started a high school. They combined with a school that was uh, starting to kind of fail financially a bit. And so now GCDS has this high school that's on a campus five minutes away from the traditional school and uh, this is the fifth year that the high school has existed. So it's still very new. And obviously, when you're building a school, you want to be able to ensure that you have success in a number of different measures. So uh, one of those would be, you know, rates of admission. Do a lot of kids want to go there? Yes, they have that checked off. Another one is obviously uh, college placement. It's a preparatory school. And there are other preparatory schools in Greenwich, Connecticut that also have amazing college admissions. So the idea is that GCDS wants to be able to say, we have a lot of success with uh, our college counseling office and with kids getting into schools that they want to go to. So, you know, part of that might be, obviously, do our kids get into the most competitive school? How many kids at Greenwich Country Day are going to an Ivy League school or Ivy Plus or NESCAC or whatever low admissions rate, acceptance rate schools? But We've also tried to put an emphasis on uh, finding the right fit for students. And so I think, you know, like, what is the rate of students who go to a college after GCDS and stay there for four years, meaning college placement was successful, they don't want to transfer, they like it there. Or students reporting how happy they are with the school they end up going to upon high school graduation, et cetera. So I think that I love that there is a little bit more of an emphasis on, you know, finding the right fit for you rather than just, you know, like not trying to pump every kid to apply ED to an Ivy League school. Mm -hmm. But that being said, there are certainly a lot of kids who want to do that because they, you know, are from a high-achieving area. They had a parent who went there. They just know a lot about the school. Being in New England, the Ivy League schools are like geographically closer, so you just hear about them more. And I'm using Ivy League as an example, but you always have your – Stanford's and your Dukes and your UVA's and your Middlebury's and whatever. Um, a lot of other great schools too. But I don't know. I, I do think it's tough. Um, one thing that I try to stress to students is that whether this is good or not, going to a preparatory school gives you a ton of connections in life. Um, and I had a student last year who was saying, you know, I really want to go to this college because – or this number of colleges because I want to work – at Goldman Sachs, and I know that part of the networking that will get me into a job in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, a high-paying, elite job, is 
going to one of these schools. They're not going to want me if I went to whatever other like state university or less selective school. And so I tried to stress to them, I understand that. And I'm not going to say that that's not legitimate, but you already being able to say, I went to Gilman School for high school or I went to Greenwich Country Day School for high school is already a networking tool in and of itself. I mean, just coming from, and I know that you've had this with being a college lacrosse player, right? There are these mini worlds that maybe your college degree doesn't get you the uh, Goldman Sachs job or whatever, the job you want. But being able to say, I went to this prep school, I grew up in this area, that's already a helpful tool in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So when you think about what parents are actually paying for when they're when they're the yeah. sending in the check every year for tuition at one of these independent schools. Mm-hmm. They're really paying for the connections, the social connections, and being surrounded by, you know, these types of people in high school. Yes. And I think an Ivy League school is similar, right? You're going to an Ivy League school. You're going to get a great education. You're going to learn from amazing professors. But you're also going to have the career center and the alumni network that these schools have. So I'm not going to say that going to those elite colleges isn't worth it. But I think that kids forget, maybe parents forget too, I don't know, that going to those high schools is already a version of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean... I also think that's why sports are so emphasized, too, in high-level athletics because, again, that's another network to tap into. You know, if you you play this high-level sport with these types of people, right, like like that's my experience, too, is I know a lot of people in the world of lacrosse, and lacrosse is such a small world Mm -hmm. that – you know, you could. My dad played lacrosse, so he's got a lot of connections, a lot of friends in that world. Totally. I played growing up, and even if I didn't go to college with, you know, these people, there are people that I grew up with that I played with, that I played club lacrosse with, yeah. summer ball with, that I'm close with, and that's another, that's another form of an institution right there. Yes, I think so. I saw a thing recently that the word of the year, I think, on Merriam-Webster or some big dictionary, the word of the year is authentic. I think one of the words of the year should be networking because I think that's another effect of social media and just the way that these schools are headed, not necessarily in a bad way, but everything is becoming about networking. And like these high schoolers who I teach are making LinkedIn profiles. <laughs> like what? They're asking me in the middle of class, can I add you on LinkedIn, Miss Ogden? No? But like why do you need that? What do you have on there? What's your resume already? You know, I was a sleepaway camp counselor in high school and it was the best, but – was I, you know, doing stem cell research internships yeah. in high school? No, but that's what is expected now. And it's all, yes, it's boosting your resume, but it's also about the connections you can make with different people. And, you know, my next door neighbor knows someone who knows someone who has this job. And so I'm meeting up to get coffee with them and networking. Like the things that these kids do now, and it's a product of their world. It's not, um, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't make anyone bad, but I think that, Networking is a word that just seems to come up way more amongst the high schoolers I teach now and just people I observe in general, maybe even my own life, than it did when I was in high school. So when you were looking at colleges, yep. what what types of questions were you asking yourself? What did you want in a school? Where were you looking? Yep. Um, and then maybe when you got to college, 
how had your expectations and the reality, like, were, was there a difference there? Yep. So I went to a prep school. I went, that's important to say here, um, given the rest of our conversation. I went to a boarding school and it was pretty small and it was very community oriented, you know, teachers who feel like parents, friends who are your roommates. And that was a very intense social environment, but also um, grew to be very comfortable, was was a very, very much a bubble in a lot of good ways and maybe challenging ways too. But I felt very, I was not ready to leave my high school. I came as a new sophomore there. So maybe if I had had one more year there, I would have felt ready to leave. But I wanted a school that felt like that. I wanted community. I wanted to be able to know a lot of faces. Um, But I also, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to study yet. So I wanted a lot of opportunities. I knew probably something in the liberal arts. I knew I wanted to teach, but I wasn't necessarily interested in going to a big university with an elementary education major. I knew I loved foreign language. Uh, I really liked history and political science. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to major in. So I wanted to go to a school where I could just apply to the school, not to the business school or the engineering school. But I also, again, really liked that small school feel. So, and I was familiar with the South. I had spent the summers in Virginia a lot. So I knew a lot of the Virginia, North Carolina kind of schools and had another set of connections to people down there. So... I applied to a lot of like, I applied to Dartmouth ED and I got deferred, which again, I thought was a rejection. Um, I had an older sister who went there and so I felt pretty comfortable there. My dad also went there. So I will, uh, I will own that um, for better or for worse. And I also applied to NESCAC schools and I applied to, you know, UVA, more Southern NESCAC, like WNL, Davidson, a lot of smaller school feels. And UVA is a big school, but again, I had so many connections from people from Connecticut who went there, but also a lot of Virginia people I knew. So I felt like I kind of had a handle on the social scene. And maybe that's a whole other aspect is, you know, looking at a school and thinking, can I navigate this socially? But um, I ended up applying to a bunch of different schools, got into some, didn't get into others. And I got into Dartmouth regular decision after getting deferred. I debated on whether I was going to go there because I kind of had a, you know, frick you to Dartmouth in my mind. You didn't accept me, D. You're not going to let me in regular. And then I got in regular, was deciding between Dartmouth and UVA. And I decided on Dartmouth and I went there. And then when I got there, um, I found that having gone to a prep school made it a lot easier for me to navigate the school academically. Um, But I think that with everyone – at those types of schools, I had a little bit of imposter syndrome that it took me a while to figure out because you're surrounded by kids who are, you know, plenty of valedictorians, plenty of really, really accomplished people and really confident people. Um, Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was really smart, I was really capable, but I wasn't quite as confident academically. And that was something that I had to spend four years kind of trying to own was my, my own abilities. So I'm having this conversation with our uh, CIE director, Mike Molina, in a couple of weeks about affirmative Which is action. It's like DEI, right? Yeah, it's DEI. Mm-hmm. And um, we're talking about affirmative action. And one of the things that we want to try to touch on in our conversation, which we're making into a podcast too, mm-hmm. is this idea of belonging at an academic institution and yep. how do you create belonging in a learning environment. And one of the things that we have got gotten to in our prior conversations is the idea of grit in 
whatever it is, if it's a learning situation, if it's athletics, but it's the idea that you're you're going to push through whatever whatever barriers or pushback maybe that you face in the sense of belonging. So, you know, maybe as a recruited athlete, there are times when professors don't look down on you, but kind of push you aside a little bit because, oh, this person got in with a little bit of help from admissions. Yeah. Or, you know, in other cases, if you're um, from a certain demographic or, or background or state even, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you got into the school because you're the, one of the few people from North Dakota who applied. Right. Right, and people might look at you and treat you in a certain certain way. Yep. We've talked a lot already, and I hope that we talk more about this on the podcast episode about mm-hmm. grit in um, learning spaces and how you kind of just have to expect almost that not everything's going to be purpose per- perfect. Not everyone's going to look at you like, oh, this person deserves to be here. You've yeah. got to prove yourself yep. every single time you sit down. Yeah, and and I even see that play out now in my professional life. Um, I'm definitely on the younger side of where I teach, and I did not do – I did an internship in college at the school I teach at now, but I didn't do a fellowship program when I came in. I came in and immediately was teaching four sections of U.S. history. My first day of orientation at my job was the day after I graduated college. Like, I went right into it. And – Sometimes I find myself even feeling challenged at work. Maybe I'm just projecting it on myself. But, you know, like, do I deserve to be here as a, you know, 25-year-old teaching four sections of U.S. history? The other U.S. history teacher is a veteran teacher who, you know, has a couple master's degrees and a lot more experience than I do. And I felt that in college, too. And I think that what I have landed on is, I mean, A, in in one sense, if you don't have confidence in yourself, it's really hard to expect other people to have confidence in you. So the fake it till you make it, I think is kind of important. Yes, you want to be honest with, uh, you know, I don't have everything perfect. I talked the last time I was on here about that floating duck method. Everyone looks like they're a duck floating at the surface um, and everything's easy breezy for them, but beneath they're pedaling, pedaling. And so that's one aspect of it. You know, you've got to own when something doesn't come super easily to you or I think it's important to own that um, in the sake of like a communal space. But you've got to have confidence in yourself. And so part of that is doing whatever you got to do to hype yourself up, whether it's daily rituals, whether it's, you know, journaling, whatever, to remind yourself of that. But also I think surrounding yourself with people who support you and hype you up and remind you of, you know, how qualified you are to be in a place is really important. So I had amazing, amazing friends in college who uh, we really just lifted each other up and still do. Um, And we all have very different interests, but hype each other up in whatever our job is or whatever. Um, I have an awesome family support system who is very supportive of me and my career and was supportive of me in college and everything. And then I also have some really, really great colleagues who, um, a bunch of whom, not all of whom, but a bunch of whom are female and some of whom are younger females as well. So it's kind of a, again, like a sort of like a affinity space of reminding ourselves that like we deserve to be here. And even if, you know, someone made a comment one day, a kid, an adult or something that made us feel like, wait, maybe, you know, 
maybe I, I shouldn't have this job. Maybe I'm not qualified. Maybe I should be only co-teaching a class, not teaching one on my own. Maybe I shouldn't be in academic leadership position at my school. Um, you've got to remind yourself, have some grit with that, hype yourself up, and then surround yourself with people that do that too. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. And I think uh, just rewinding a little bit to um, like the pedaling idea, the floating yeah. duck idea, I think what I've learned in teaching, and I don't know if I had these skills or this uh, ability in high school, definitely not definitely not in high school, but in college and maybe the first couple of years of teaching, mm-hmm. the idea of owning up to your mistakes or saying you don't know something or asking for help does, yeah. I think, take confidence. Totally. I think it, it takes, uh, I mean, I think at this point, teaching, if I don't know something, saying to my students, I don't know that, I have to look that up. I think that takes a lot of confidence to be able to say that. Yes, it's a major strength and and I teach US history and I know you do too. And this is a time in our country where it's really scary to teach US history. And I say that to parents on parents night at the beginning of the school year. Like, you know, I'm sure a lot of you don't envy the job of teaching American politics and American studies in 2023. My parents were always like, oh God, how do you do, how do you teach, you know, the 2024 election or how do you do this? How do you teach slavery? And it's definitely a challenge. And I try to be as honest with my students as possible about like, you know, even when I'm teaching slavery, I try to say to them at the beginning, I do say to them at the beginning, you know, like I do as much research and work and reading as I can and thinking as possible as I can on this topic. But, you know, I did not live during the time of enslavement. I've never even lived in the South and I am a white person. So I'm trying to approach this conversation really carefully, knowing that it's a really important conversation to have and it's an important subject to teach. But sometimes I even just, if I'm in the middle of teaching something, I'll say to students like, and admittedly, I'm trying to watch my language with how I phrase this to you all because it's a challenging topic or something like that. I think that not only is important for students to understand how uh, challenging these issues are to teach, how many different narratives there are, but I think it hopefully can encourage them to always think critically about what they're learning and challenge single-sided narratives and search for, you know, another way to, another lens through which to see things as well. Yeah, you made me think of something that we've we've talked a little bit about before, but I think having a relationship with your students is so important when you're teaching any of anything, but especially a subject like U.S. history, because I I really don't like this idea in the current age that we're in of the gotcha, or mm-hmm. people call it ca- cancel culture, but I think it's just more of a gotcha kind of mentality. If I know you, Miss Ogden, as my teacher, I'm not going to be on the lookout for things that you say or things that you do in a classroom environment that, you know, trigger me or impact me in a certain way because I realize your intent. And I think I think that whole conversation of intent versus impact is yep. it's essential in a history class. But just in the world today, I think that's, um, you know, a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and teaching students, we do a lot of work in writing in my class because they're 10th graders. They're learning how to write research papers and effective arguments. Um, it's a pretty inquiry-based classroom. We do a lot of project-based learning at my school. I don't give many – don't give any exams. Sometimes I give quizzes, but not a lot of, like, tests, a lot more 
abstract thinking. But when I ask students a question um, in class, like recently we've wrapped up our antebellum unit and I said, was the Civil War inevitable? After I ask that question, I say, there are no right or wrong answers. And at first, you know, at first you ask that question, you hear silence, and then you say there are no right or wrong answers. Then students feel more comfortable kind of wading into the discussion. And I think that at this point in the year or semester in, they know me well enough to know that I'm not going to say, you know, well, um, why don't you think more carefully about that? Um, or shaming them into, you know, having a different answer. But you say no right or wrong answers, and then you ask them whatever they say, yes, it was, no, it wasn't. Then when you ask why, use evidence to back that up. As long as they can argue something and use evidence to back it up, obviously you want to be courteous and not say anything that could harm another person. But in general, kids are thoughtful enough. They're not – I don't think it's worth – oftentimes I don't even find moments in my classroom where I need to say a gotcha or another kid needs to because they feel safe in the classroom environment. They're smart enough to be able to say, yes, the Civil War was inevitable, or no, it wasn't, and here is why. Here is the evidence I have. Here is what I can point to that's, you know, a turning point in U.S. history that would impact the Civil War coming or whatever. I think that's really important to me, and I, it's one of my classroom norms I say at the beginning of the year is we need to have a safe and joyful classroom environment. So safe means that we – each and every one of us, myself included, all my students included, every day are working to create a uh, a classroom environment that accepts people for what they say, doesn't judge them, doesn't, you know, lead to snickers in the corner of the classroom, or if that was a dumb answer, that was a smart answer, or whatever. But safe, in my opinion, I don't, I actually don't like the word safe that much because, especially in college campuses, because I don't think a lot of these issues, and I think maybe we're talking more so about like college campus mm -hmm. issues, because I think, you know, in independent schools, for the most part, teachers do a great job trying to create these environments where everyone feels comfortable and quote unquote safe. But I think a lot of the topics that you discuss, especially in a history class, just in general on, on college campuses, if it's a real controversial topic, it's not going to be safe. People are going to be offended. People are going to be angry. People are going to come away with a solid opinion and other people are going to be like, yeah, you know, damn, that person has that opinion. Yep. Uh, and they feel very strongly about it. And that offends me a little bit. Yeah, I think you raise a good point. So then I guess the follow-up is, and maybe I should even change the wording on my norms, but it's safe in what sense? So safe in the fact that everyone is going to agree with each other and get along the whole time and, um, you know, agree with everything another person says? No, that's not the point of this. But I think that when I say safe, and again, maybe should I, I should elaborate in my classroom norms. When I say safe, it's as long as you are using evidence to back up what you're saying and you are not trying to deliberately harm someone, mm -hmm. you can say what you want to say in the right. classroom. Or you can argue a point. And yes, there is always an other, right? There's a there's a couple of words that we don't want to say in the classroom. We don't want to single out someone in the classroom. We don't want to use violent language. But these kids are smart enough to know that. By the time they are 16 years old, living in 2023, I mean, like, I don't even know if 16-year-old Annie would have been that knowledgeable about what to say and what not to say. But I have found that if my kids feel safe and comfortable in the classroom, they know each other well enough, and I try to set that at the beginning of the year of having students know each other well, feel comfortable enough with each other, I'd rather have them 
feeling comfortable enough to participate, say what they want in class. Mm -hmm. And I have rarely, if ever, had a student say something completely outlandishly horrific that, you know, irreparably damages the the confidence or the, the identity of another student. Yeah, that's a good point. I also, I, I guess I think of safe, that word, uh, almost as opposite of what it's supposed to mean. Like, it, it's less about how people feel, but it's more about what you can say and, and the ability to feel like you can speak your mind. It's almost right. a freedom of speech word, in my opinion. It's like, you want to say what you believe, but also be aware of how your words may come at come out sometimes. yeah safe it to me doesn't mean we don't touch certain topics it does mean though if you're gonna say if you're gonna give your answer you're gonna give your opinion you better have academic evidence to back that up um and that's just like where i fall on it and that's where my school falls as a whole where our history program falls is um allowing students to use a variety of evidence to back up their claims and to argue a point but knowing that that is rooted in, you know, can you point to a primary source? Can you point to mm-hmm. um, a book, an article, a something, a past event in history that would back up your point rather than just coming in and saying, you know, I feel like this presidential candidate is blah, blah, blah. Well, why do you feel that way? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. All right, well, let's get to, I guess, the other side of these academic discussions, which is like the mental well-being side. Oh, God. And I know you're a big runner. Yep. Um, so what are some ways that students, you know, can help themselves when they're living in this fishbowl and everyone's, you know, in this political climate? Yep. Uh, how do girls and guys get to a state mentally where they feel okay and uh, capable of taking on all these challenges? Yep. I think it's about, for me, daily rituals, daily habits, uh, things that you can look forward to, things that you know help you get to a good space, a neutral space mentally, at least neutral. So I'm a big runner uh, because physical exercise just makes me feel healthier, makes me feel more energized, it gives me endorphins, but there's something about running for me that is incomparable. I'll, I'll do any type of exercise, but running is really what hits the sweet spot of uh, endorphins and, and good mental health for me. So um, anyone who knows me well knows that if I get a run in, on a certain day, I, I'm having a much better day. It doesn't matter if it's 20 minutes, 40 minutes, fast, slow, whatever. But if I can just, you know, feel my feet hit a pavement or even mm. a treadmill, uh, it, it puts me in a much, much better place. And I try to do it before work as often as I can so that I can come into work feeling ready to go, feeling like even if it's just something on your to-do list, um, something that you can check off for the day of, okay, I got some exercise or, okay, I made my bed this morning. Yeah, that's um, good. Anything you can win do. the day, win the day. Yeah, it's those little things that get one victory so much. in before your first cup of coffee. Yep, if I'm ever in a bad mood, go clean my room. Yeah, makes me feel great. Clean my apartment, do some laundry, go grocery shopping, even something you know, fun, make a fun dinner. <laughs> um, what is your book recommendation that you brought in today? Mm, okay, so I am not great at reading in my free time. And I know that's bad because as a teacher, what I'm supposed to say is all I want to do in my free time is sit down and read. Or at least that's how I feel what I should say. When I have free time, what I want to do is go on a run, clean my room, whatever. But I do, when I get into a good book, really appreciate it. And 
I like reading things. I love reading things that have to do with my job, but even more so, I think it's really reading for pleasure when it's something that's just a plot that you love or something. So two books, one that I'm in the middle of right now, one that I just finished. So the one I finished was Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I wish I had the hard copy here to show the people, but most... It, it was a really popular book when it came out in 2017. It's been popular the last few years, particularly for women because it's a lot about women. Um, so I bet a lot of your listeners who are women from their teens to their, you know, to 50s, whatever, um, have heard of Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. But I loved this book. It just transported me. It's about a kind of like a Marilyn Monroe, a fictional character who was like a Marilyn Monroe, big famous actress, etc., in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and now she's older and she's commissioning this younger woman, younger writer to uh, write an autobiography of her, authorized biography, I guess, of her life. And so she's recounting what her life has been like as an actress. And it just transports you to this amazing world. Plot is so good. We love a good twist. There's a good twist in it. Is it a long book? Love it. How many pages? I want to say it's about 400. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was that long. It's so good. Well, she had seven husbands, so it goes husband by husband. You can't skip over Is it over tough to husband. keep track of all of them? No. No? And that's a credit to Taylor Jenkins Reid, the author. Hmm. Um, and then the one I'm reading right now that actually uh, the the girl, my girl Chrissy, who cuts my hair does, um, that she recommended to me is White Oleander. And it's a book from like 99, I think, like I have to ask my mom about it because my mom's a big reader and I'm sure she knows what it is. They made it into a movie. But it's a Bildungsroman. It's coming of age. It's um, coming of age of a young girl who um, goes through the foster care system. She has a mother and in the beginning some stuff happens with her mother and then she enters the foster care system. And the plot is great, but the way it is written is incredible. The, uh, Janet Smith is the author and I'm only partway through it right now, but it's so good and it's just beautiful, and I love movies, so I want to watch the movie so badly. So I got to finish the book first, of course. Hmm. So I'm loving White Oleander. I guess both of them are um, – I'd recommend for women in particular. Um, I would not recommend for men, but um, they they both get to an interesting aspect of womanhood that I really enjoy reading Seven about. Wives one seems like it might be a movie too or, seven a, husbands. or a series. I think if you look Sorry, it seven up, it's been commissioned – for yeah. one, you know, maybe Reese Witherspoon or someone is trying to make it into a movie or a show. But I I personally think a book should be a movie. I don't like when things get dragged out o over a show. Oh. I like a good movie where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like the book has. Hmm. I feel like movies are getting harder and harder to watch. People prefer series almost yes. today. And you know why? I think it's because people don't like sitting down and watching one thing for two hours. People can binge watch a series because, you know, after 40 minutes of an episode, you can kind of re-rack your brain and then start over again with the next episode. But I don't think people are good at sitting down and watching a movie. My students tell me they hate movies. Um, my family's a big family movie family, so I well, love I'm surprised they're making these three-hour movies, though, like the Killers of the Flower Moons, three hours, Oppenheimer's, three hours. Like all the recent yes. movies that have come out have been three hours long. And That's if, too long. If you look at the complaints, the number one complaint is it's too long. And so I don't disagree with that. I haven't seen Oppenheimer. I haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, Wolf of Wall Street, I think, is the one three-hour movie I've ever seen. And, three hours? Yeah, and people are obsessed with that movie. Isn't that Martin Scorsese? I think so. He always does these three-hour movies, like The Departed and everything. And The Departed, I've tried to finish 
multiple times and every time I can't do it 30 minutes in. So I'm the problem too. But, you know, I think there should be a study done about how, like, even my teenagers who can't even watch a full-length movie a lot of the time or don't like to, everyone's obsessed with Wolf of Wall Street. So they, they've got dopamine in every that's true. minutes of that movie. So Have you ever seen The Town? I have seen The Town. I had a I had a Boston movie kick a couple of years ago and Gone Baby Gone, The Town. Good Will Hunting. Good Will Hunting, of course. I didn't watch Good Will Hunting in full until two years ago because I always thought it was overrated. Don't know why I thought that. I watched it on an airplane, sobbing the whole time. So, really? Yeah. Cried during it. I cried during a lot of movies, though. So a movie I want to see that's a long movie is Saving Private Ryan. Never seen it. Don't watch it with your students. I learned that. Really? I started watching it with my students, and there's there's a lot of violence. Like, just war violence, but it opens with a D-Day scene, mm-hmm. and oh my God. What like, about All Quiet on the Western Front? Have you showed that to students? I have not. I read the book. Uh, I haven't watched the movie with students. I think it's in German with English subtitles, which shouldn't deter me from showing it to students, but I think it does. And then I watched 1917 with students one year, which mm-hmm. is a good World War One. What about movie. They Shall Not Grow Old, which I think is another World War One movie that's colorized? No. I don't know that one, so okay. maybe I should know it. Yeah. I, I got it from it. Kevin Hudson a few years ago, but it's uh... – I think there's something to be said about watching a movie in history class, though. Can't do it all the time, but it sticks with kids well. Yeah, the um, what's the French and Indian War movie that Last I, of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans, my students. That that brought everything to life. Yep. For them. Yep. Um, we had a accidental Daniel Day Lewis marathon in my class a couple years ago because they watched The Crucible in English after they read it. Then we watched Last of the Mohicans, and then I think maybe we watched like half of Lincoln before break one time. So. How does the Crucible go over at your school? Because I I don't know if uh, I would I would teach it again. I love it, but I don't think it really went too well this year for my students. So I don't teach the Crucible, but we do because they do it in English. But we have very closely tied English and history programs, so we talk about the Crucible a lot in my class, and we do a joint English history project after they read it. And I think that uh, it's amazing in many ways, but I think students struggle to read it. I think the story. Students can latch on to the story, but the actual, like, reading the play, they don't love as much. I mean, so, I think the I'm themes sure. are so important and the ideas that are explored, but that's almost second tier to wrapping your brain around the witch trials, which is hard for me even to think about. Yeah, I love teaching McCarthyism, so I like that kind of dual learning that goes on there because The Crucible was written during the McCarthy era. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if my school, my English program – uh, my school ended up taking a break from it for a year. It's hard because a lot of times you start the year reading it because it's 1600s, mm-hmm. but it's a tough way to start the year. To yeah. tell them that all of American history is the crucible is a, a tough sell. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, let me ask you another question. Uh, if you – so – and this doesn't have to be a super long, like, tangent, which it could okay. be, but uh, – Noted. I'll stop with my <laughs> tangents. <laughs> No, I just think it could be a long conversation. Yes. Do you think that this is the most interesting time in American history to be alive? And if not, is there another era that you would have liked to live in? I don't have a neat answer to whether this is currently the most interesting time because I'm not that old. It's one of the only times in American history I've ever lived in. Um, 
but there's certainly a lot going on right now. I always tell my students living through COVID and stuff, you're a walking primary source for COVID and for plenty of other things. So I do think it's an interesting time. Um, it's hard to say if I would rather live in a more interesting time. Like, yeah, World War II was really interesting. I don't know if I'd want to be around when World War II was going on. That sounds kind of scary. Yeah. Or Cold War. Um, I don't know. I'm not really as... I haven't latched on to the obsession with AI that so many people have, and maybe that's just my own fault, but that doesn't really interest me right now. I think politically we live in a very interesting time right now, and I try to help students understand that by saying, you know, this is the most divided time in American history, at least in recent decades, but that doesn't mean that you have to be a part of it. It doesn't mean you have to have one really strong-sided opinion and hate the other side. So I like teaching in this time period, even mm -hmm. though it's hard. I love teaching in this time period. What about you? I really enjoyed teaching the Revolutionary War and the lead up to the Revolutionary mm. War. And I think, and watching the John Adams series on HBO and learning just about these figures yep. that I, you know, the fact that they were all alive at the same time and they all came together with these incredible ideas that weren't, you know, they weren't always, a, they weren't original ideas. They had read Locke and they had read yep. Rousseau and, you know, they had studied the Enlightenment thinkers and brought all of that together. But I think the fact that all of that happened at the same time is so fascinating. And I, I you know, yeah. I know that there were a lot of illnesses and right. violence and that sort of thing. But I think I would have liked to live during that time. I you think know? that's a good answer. Yeah, it's a good time. Um, okay, can I ask you a question? Sure. Hmm. How does music play a role in your classroom because you really like to listen to music in class right and I know you teach American lit American history how does your own music taste play a role in class why do you think music's important in the class or not well I do uh at the beginning of my English classes sometimes history I get, have them write in their notebook mm -hmm. and I like playing light music maybe not a lot of lyrics sometimes classical music mm. a couple weeks ago I had classical Christmas music playing and a bunch of the girls in the class were looking at each other like what is going on here <laughs> uh but I like a light background music when we're thinking because I think it does I, I haven't reached into the science of this but I think having light no lyrics playing does stimulate your mind a little bit and it's also just nice it, you know I don't think that they have that in their other classes and I think it provides at least at the beginning of the class a uh relief yep. from coming from their math test you know I also think especially with 20th century American history or American lit it's a really cool way to teach to show the music that was popular at the time I have a coworker who's also an author Jim Cullen and he loves you know he has a whole book on Springsteen and uh, Billy Joel I think um, but he also does a lot with Bob Dylan and like it's cool to look at the music that was popular during a time and having that give a window into the culture students are learning about they're living in the era of Taylor Swift. That's a cool primary source for them is they're living in the era of Taylor Swift. Yes. And I think I think it will be cool, and I do this sometimes, but I think I should do this more maybe next semester, is use lyrics as a form of poetry because it really is, at the end of the day, poetry. Mm -hmm. And it's something that will make my students realize, okay, this song by, you know, Drake or Rihanna mm -hmm. or Taylor Swift or Eminem, whoever you want to, Bob Dylan. Yep. 
Bruce Springsteen. This is a this is a poem, and if we look at music in that way, I think they'll see poetry and writing and lyricism yeah. around them a little bit more. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in literature. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, yeah, music plays a big role in my in my classes. Love it. Well, Annie, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for coming in, Cesare. Thank you for having it. me back, both of you. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Yes, it's been fun. Thank you so much. See you next time. See you next time.